Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. And I'll remind you that uh, as a church, we worship uh, through a song and other ways. And one of the ways that we worship is through uh, giving. And it is indeed the generosity of our church that is fueling. Thank you, Justin. So many of the things that we are able to do. Uh, we'll put a giving slide up in just a second. There are uh, three ways that you can give. You can give uh, online at churchonbayshore.org. Uh, you can text to give uh, the amount you want to give. Or you can uh, drop off your offering one of our drop boxes located throughout the service. I also want to uh, call attention to Serve Day once again, which is next Saturday. And so there is still time to sign up for that. And I hope uh, that you, if possible, will be a part of that day. It's truly a day where all generations within our church come together and are able to serve together. And uh, last time, uh, it was really just such an incredible uh, day where we were a blessing to the community. I think we were blessed as well from serving together. And I hope uh, you will be here. Well, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark for over a year and a half, and we have arrived towards the end, which naturally covers Jesus' last days on earth. As we've journeyed through the Gospel of Mark, we have uh, compared to uh, Mark the other Gospels to add to the fullness of what transpired. And when we read through the trial of Jesus, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, who was eventually the one to officially sentence Jesus to death, stood out to me. A question that he asked is what particularly stood out to me. That question is found in the 18th chapter of the book of John. You can open your Bible to John chapter 18. The verses will be on the screen if you do not have a Bible. Pilate asked a question that I believe many are asking. Perhaps it's a question that you are wrestling with. Maybe this is something that is settled for you, but this will help you as you engage other people who might have this question. So John chapter 18, verse 33 through 38 is what I'll read now. It says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did the others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Jesus states that his purpose was to come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He says that everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. Pilate then asked, what is truth? He immediately after that says there is no guilt to be found in Jesus. But without ever getting to the answer of his question or without any further evidence, Pilate eventually orders for Jesus to be beaten and crucified. And I think this is 
significant for us today because many people take the role that Pilate takes in their life. They may not have the opportunity to facilitate Jesus' crucifixion, but like Pilate, they are complicit in the death of Christ. It is their sin that necessitates the death of Christ, and yet they don't see themselves as guilty of anything because they don't really know what they think about Jesus or about truth. The word truth used here is a Greek word, aletheia. It means objective truth. It's, it's true. It's talking about something that is not subjective but is indeed true. This is not a created truth. The world does not shape or modify or change this truth. It is the truth. It's not a truth for me and a different truth for you, but the truth for all of us. It's talking about an unchanging truth, an absolute truth. Today, there is an increasing rejection of absolute truth. Some would say that truth is whatever you see to be true. This is called relativism. Stanford University defines relativism in this way. Relativism, roughly put, is the view that truth and falsity, right and wrong, standards of reasoning, and procedures of justification are products of differing conventions and frameworks of assessment, and that their authority is confined to the context giving rise to them. I realize some of us graduated from Southern colleges, so we might need a different definition here. Basically, what Stanford University is saying is that truth is relative to and dependent upon the culture you are in is what relativism is. And so relativism says there cannot then be absolute truth. But the problem is relativism contradicts itself. Think about it. If you say there is no absolute truth that everybody should believe, you contradict yourself because you are making a statement that everybody should believe. But the statement you make is that there are no statements that everyone should believe. This is a great problem with Friedrich Nietzsche and nihilism. He actually said that all truth claims are motivated by selfishness. So what he is saying is anyone who claims to know the truth is motivated by selfishness. But that is, in fact, a claim to know the truth. And a claim to know the truth that says everyone else who claims to know the truth is selfish except for me. Now, the hidden agenda of relativism is that it wants to relativize everybody else's claim to truth, but not its own. I was actually reading an article the other day, and in this article, it was talking about a protest, and there was a sign in this protest that said, we will not tolerate intolerance. It was a sign held up, and it said, we will not tolerate intolerance. Now, if truth is relative, and not absolute, not absolute, there should be total tolerance. But to make this moral truth stick, you have to put an absolute behind it. You have to say we absolutely reject absolutes. It's self-contradictory and kind of funny. And it's all a testimony to the fact that we cannot live without absolute truth. And I would tell you, we don't actually believe in complete absolute truth. If you were to go to the bank and say you had $10,000 in your bank, you knew you had saved up $10,000, you went to the bank teller and you said, I want to withdraw $9,000 from my bank account. And they said, I'm sorry, 
but you can't. And they said, why? And you, they said, because you don't have $9,000 to withdraw. And you said, I know, I have this piece of paper, and it says there's $10,000 in there. And they said, well, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. You would have a major problem. If you went to the doctor, and you had been sick, and the doctor ran some tests on you, and he looked at the test, and he said, well, some might say that it's cancer, but I like to think it's the flu, so let's go with that. You're not okay with that diagnosis. We don't believe in absolute relativism. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't some things that are relative. For example, as a pastor, something I've come to learn is that what people define as good worship music is very much a relative thing. If you follow sports, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and what call should have been made is, and how that should have went is definitely a relative thing often. I've learned from marriage counseling and from being married, my spouse, married myself that to love your spouse can often be relative in how you show them love. And so there are some things that are relative, but what has happened today is that people have taken that and run with it. Today, we live in a very individualistic culture, and so individualism or expressive individualism and relativism have come together and have created complete chaos. Today, the new compass for truth is not what is true, but is how I feel, and we see truth through the litmus test of how we feel. Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, which I've referenced before, really dives into that, and I would encourage you to check out that book. So what we need to realize is that sometimes there is a difference between what we want to be true and what is actually true. And we could talk more about that point, but my point here is that there is such a thing as absolute truth. Not all things are absolutes, but there are absolutes. And when Pilate asks this question, that's really what he's getting to. What is truth? What is really the purpose of existence? What is really my reason for being here? And I think that maybe you this morning sitting in this uh, sanctuary or watching online this morning, that might be something you are wrestling with, whether it's you're not a believer because of it or maybe you are a Christian but you still wrestle with what is truth. And what I want you to understand is that that is why Jesus came to the earth. Jesus' purpose for coming to the earth was to bear witness to the truth. Jesus' purpose for coming to the earth was to bear witness to the truth. To bear witness means, uh, it's a, a word that means to testify. The NASB and other translations actually use that word. And he says to bear witness to the truth. Again, that word aletheia, which means objective truth, what can be known. Jesus came to testify to what is true. Now, there are some things that are true, but you can't naturally see them. It doesn't mean that it's not true. How you were conceived is something that you were not there for, but there is a truth into how you were conceived. We typically don't like to investigate that too much. Creation, or the origin of the earth, shall I say, there's a truth to it. We weren't there, so we can't naturally see it, but there's a truth to it. And so what John does when John sets up his gospel is he, he sets it up to say Jesus is coming to show us some truths that we can't see on our own. I'll go back to chapter 1, and, and John writes this in chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. It says, and the word, 
that's the revelation of God, God revealing something to us, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. It says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus is the fullness of God. Colossians 1.19 tells us that all things are made by him and through him and for him. And Colossians 1 verse 20 tells us that he, he came to reconcile all things to God. He came to help us understand how the creator and us who, who have fallen short of the creator could be reconciled, could have the right relationship. And, and the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were given through Christ. The fullness of God is now seen in the person of Christ. You see, what you need to understand about truth is that truth is not just a concept, he is a person. Truth is not just a concept, he is a person. When we're thinking of this idea of what is absolute truth, what defines existence, truth is not just a concept, he is a person. And that person is God, and that person is fully revealed to us in the person of Christ. Now, the biggest question that we have when we think about what is truth, when we think about our existence, is really eternity. I mean, where we're gonna go when we die. And Jesus tells us, in John chapter 14, what God's intention for us is. John chapter 14, verse one through seven says, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says, I've come to show you the way to the Father. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth. I am life. When Jesus taught, he taught to explain how we could have a relationship with the Father. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, that the Father who created us, who is holy, can have a relationship with us who are sinful through the grace of God fully expressed in the person of Christ. That's the gospel. And then as people who believe in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ in Jesus, how we ought to live in light of that truth. That's why we have the scriptures. You have sent the message, or excuse me, you've seen the message of John at the beginning of his writing. And now look at what John says at the end of his gospel in chapter twenty. And he also says something similar to this in chapter 21. But verse 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, if you'll go to the Gospels as they stand in the Bible and listen earnestly and carefully and openly with a willingness to obey the truth if you see it, then the witness of the writers and the testimony of Jesus will prove to you their credibility. And this is perhaps another tension for many who are seeking the truth, perhaps for you, that we, can we really trust the Bible? Can we really take the Bible at face value? And there are a whole slew of reasons people would say they don't know that they can trust the Bible. And, and Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, really articulates what most people mean when they say that. He says, what they mean is that the Bible is not entirely trustworthy because some parts, maybe many parts, are scientifically impossible, historically unreliable, or culturally progressive. So what a lot of people would say is because they read the Bible and they know what they know about science, or they read the Bible and you know, they know what they know about history, or they read the Bible and they know about current culture, that they, they have a hard time believing the Bible. But you know, the point of the scripture is to testify to the truth. It's, it's to really explain the core principle of, of who God is, of who we are, and how we ought to respond to those things and live in relationship with him. So not everything is covered in the scripture, but what I would suggest to you is that science, what we have known about science over time has not disproven the Bible, and if anything, the more advanced we are in science, the more the Bible has actually become compatible with some of the things in the Bible. Now, there are some things that happen in the Bible that you're like, how did that happen knowing what we know about science? And, and some have said maybe, and, and, and I'm not saying this, but maybe you know some of the ways the things the Bible are written uh, weren't written to be as literal, and so that's a definition. But I'll also just say this. If God exists, then anything is possible. And so it's not understanding all these different scientific aspects. It's do we believe this core idea of there is a God who created, who can operate outside of what we know to be the laws of nature because they, they submit to him. He has power over them, authority over them. So I would just suggest that while I understand your hesitancy there, there is really nothing that has disproven and if anything, is led us to God. Now, historical reliability, that's the question of, can we really trust what was written in the word? And all I would say to you about that is given the historical evidence of manuscripts close to the date of origin and volume of those numbers and circulation of those numbers, if we cannot believe the reliability of the documents that we still have today as what was originally written, then we cannot believe anything in ancient history because nothing compares historically to the Bible. And yet we'll often take some of these other things uh, that happen in history as if they did when we have six copies of those, but when we have the Bible and hundreds if not thousands of copies of those and we question those credibility. And so I would say that historical reliability and the, the explorations that we have and the evidence over time have only again caused us to believe the Bible more as historically reliable. And then cultural regressive, I would just say this, we ought to never allow the way of a culture to be what shapes how we define truth. We can look over societies throughout history and how the culture moved and understand that to be very clear. And I would lastly say this, test it. Test it to see if it's true as you follow and obey the Bible. 
Jesus says, those who are of the truth, listen to his voice. He's saying those who really want to know the truth, they listen to my voice. The NLT, the New Living Translation says, all who love the truth, listen to my voice. We all have some voice inside of us. I, I, you know, for probably what you also would identify this as, we'll call it my conscience. When I think of my conscience, I have to think of Jiminy Cricket because, you know, Pinocchio. And, you know, the, the, the mentality is always let your conscience be your guide, right? Listen to that voice inside of you. Well, I do believe, to use that language, that everybody has a conscience. Everybody has a moral compass, if you will. It's an inner feeling or a voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness and wrongness of our behavior. And our conscience informs our shoulds and our should nots. It, it informs how we view sexuality. It informs how we treat others or don't treat others. Our conscience informs how high we are allowed to drive above the speed limit. Uh, because it's either five or 10 or 15, depending on who you grew up around. And it, sorry, police officers, it's not. Uh, it feels like we just know these things. And, and there's that mentality today that says, just follow your heart. Just believe in yourself. You do you. But social media has clearly revealed that not everybody has the same shoulds and should nots. What we need to understand is that our conscience is informed. Our conscience is informed. Our shoulds and should not, should nots come from somewhere. Now, we all have some natural ones, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But then, based on our parents, based on our school, based on our religion, based on what we watch on television, based on the laws of the culture we're in, based on who our friends are, and much more, our conscience is shaped. The earlier we are taught some of these things, the more deeply ingrained these ideas become in our conscience. And certainly if we experience trauma, then that heightens how we feel about some shoulds and should nots. And this determines what we believe to be true. Now, I want you to notice what I just said there. This determines what we believe to be true. I wanna make something very clear. Everyone is a believer. Every person who has ever walked the face of the earth is a believer. Every single one of us who are, are people who put our faith in ideas, principles, and people. I know that people act like they're not, like there's believers and non-believers, but we all believe. Well, you might say, I can't, I can't believe in God. I don't believe in something I cannot see. Yes, you do. You got married having no idea what that spouse would fully look like in 20 to 30 years or what they would fully be like in 20 to 30 years. You really just knew a little bit about them. You get in the car and you drive your vehicle and you have no idea who's going to be driving coming on the other lane and what the consequences will be of that. You drink water or other beverages and you don't actually see what's in it. You're trusting in something you can't really see. Now you have doubts about maybe getting married. You have doubts about getting in the vehicle. You have doubts about drinking whatever it is you're drinking, but it's worth it. It's worth the risk. And you might say, well, it's different with God. I agree. Because if we believe in God, then that has an incredible amount of significance on our life. And this is where Pilate is, and maybe you are. Mark chapter 15, verse two through five says, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? 
And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. And we learn from other places in the Gospels that there was something about Jesus that amazed Pilate, that disturbed his, his wife. There was something that just stirred in Pilate about Jesus. Perhaps that's you. Maybe it's all the way back from when you were a child and your grandma's faith or your parents' faith, or your friends' faith. And there was just something about Jesus. And you never took them all that seriously, but there's just something you can't shake about who Jesus is. Maybe you would consider yourself a pretty well-read person, and you, you know, look into all kinds of religions, all kinds of beliefs, but for some reason, something keeps pulling you back to Jesus. There's just something you like about Jesus. I want you to read on in Matthew's account of what happens here. Pilate said to him, Matthew chapter 26, verse 22, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now there is much evidence that the practicing of washing one's hands was a way of showing public innocence. Matthew tells us that Pilate saw that Jesus did not deserve death. And to me, I think a lot of people are right here with Pilate where they would say, yeah, I mean, Jesus seemed like a pretty good guy. I don't know that he deserved to die. And, and so they have this admiration about Jesus. And that might be where some of you are this morning. You're just kind of non-committal about him. Not because you think he was wrong or untrue, but because you just don't know. And you live with a suspended judgment on the matter. Let me ask you a question to see if you're being really honest with yourself. Do you suspend judgment and claim ignorance on issues that really matter to you, where your personal interest is at stake? Or do you just suspend judgment in those areas that seem unimportant to you? My point is, Pilate may say, and you may say, I don't know what absolute truth is, and I don't think I can find out. But the truth is, when your own personal interest is at stake, you won't act as if you don't know what the truth is. We have very strong convictions when our life and our possessions are on the line, don't we? Relativism is blown away when our rights and our life are on the line. I've never met or heard of a person who has any trouble believing in moral absolutes when they're punched in the face. They immediately believe the aggressor is guilty. And if they were to go before a judge and the judge said, they're not guilty because truth is relative and it was good for him to punch you in the face and you can't put your absolutes onto him, then you would say that that judge is a bad judge, that they're unjust. Now think about yourself for a moment. And C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, which is in many ways an autobiography of his conversion from atheism or agnosticism to Christianity, 
and then a tool to help others see what he saw says this. These then are the two points I wanted to make first. Wanted to make first, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. First, that human beings are all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. They can't get rid of this. And it's not something that is learned. You might say, well, yeah, that's because society teaches right and wrong and morals. C.S. Lewis says this, if you were to put a boy on an island with no exposure, and then you were integrating him into society, he would not know the multiplication. But he would have certain morals and a certain moral code and a certain feeling of right and wrong, regardless of what he had been exposed to. Like there is this divine law. And you might say, but, but culturally, people have different moral ethics in, in from culture to culture. Yes, but the core of them are really not that different. Out of seven billion people who walk the face of the earth, the core of our moral compass tends to point in the same direction as if it were programmed, as if it were designed, as if we know we should obey a law that we did not create. And secondly, that they do not in fact behave in that way. Very few people would say, I'm completely good. And if they say that, their society points out that that is not true. And if you think you are completely good, when we wrap up this morning, ask the person sitting next to you if you are completely good. And so this creates a problem for us. We wanna live without guilt. And so some reject morality, even though they really don't reject morality, and we see that the longer we're around them. Some create some kind of system of good versus bad that say, says, okay, I'm good enough now. Some adopt another system, whether that's Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or something. But what's happening is there's this authority we've created that we believe justifies the way that we live. And this is what I'm suggesting. The reason that people don't see Jesus is because they stop seeking the truth of who that authority is. Why did Pilate do what he did? The text tells us in Mark chapter 14, verse 14 and 15. It says, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate was content, was keeping his life how it was. He was politically motivated. His conscience was informed by self-gratification and self-exaltation and self-preservation. And what he fought, sought to preserve himself and exalt himself and gratify himself most was to be okay with the crucifixion of Jesus. The question is, what is truth? There is an absolute truth, even if you don't see it yet. Do not suspend your judgment because your life is working out just fine. Because I would suggest that it's like you're on a party boat on a river that's headed towards a waterfall. And everything seems just fine but judgment is coming. 
if you're not rescued. And so I wanna ask you three questions in closing. What is informing your conscience? What is it that is informing your shoulds and your should, should nots? You believe something. Have you really sought it out? Have you really investigated what is true? And there are lots of opinions on how you should live your life and ultimately what is eternal life. And what I would suggest to you is that in God's word, we have tested guidance on marriage, tested guidance on contentment, tested guidance on finances, tested guidance on so many things that have transcended time and multiple cultures. We have nothing like it. And people have been trying to disprove God's word for years. And yet at the same time, it continues to change societies and life. And I would suggest God wants to inform your conscience. The second question is if you are trusting God's word, do you trust God's word in such a way that you obey his voice? Because it's one thing to give lip service to say we trust God, but to believe is to act, not just feel. It's to actually do what he calls us to do in marriage. It's to actually do what he calls us to do with our money. It's to actually do what he calls us to do in serving. It's to actually do what he calls us to do in self-control. And all of that stuff can seem overwhelming, but what I'm suggesting to you is that the practical difference between people who experience the goodness of following God and the people who say they follow God and don't experience it, that they read and hear and obey the Bible. Because of Jesus, they trust the Bible and they see how good God is. And it's hard and challenging and tough and sometimes stretches our belief, but it's worth it. Not because I say so or because we have a book that's 2,000 years old, but because it's God's word and because it revolves around Jesus. And that's what I want you to see is that Jesus will not let you down. Jesus will not forsake you. Jesus can be trusted. And you have to make that decision. In John chapter six, Jesus is teaching some things that for the crowd that was like, hey, we want some Jesus was like, oh, that cost a lot. That's more than we thought. And John chapter six, verse 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They said, this is weird. This is hard for us to understand. This isn't what we naturally believe. And Jesus says in verse 67 to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the truth. And in a world where the truth can be cloudy, I would ask you, is the truth becoming more and more clear? Are the things of this world growing strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace? Listen, there is strong scientific, historical evidence We can have the philosophical debate about how almost all theories break down. And I believe they all point us to this overwhelming conclusion. History, knowledge, philosophy, everything points us to this very likely conclusion that Jesus is the truth. I studied that in my master's work. And I can win an argument (laughs) about that kind of stuff. But here's what I want you to hear. Because of Jesus, I have the heart of a father, even though I did not experience that in my life. Because of Jesus, even though I really knew nothing about what it meant to be a godly husband, I fall forward in his grace, figuring it out. Because of Jesus, He's called me to things that I never thought I would have the heart and character to do or the strength to do. And so, yes, there's all the intellectual side of it, but here's what I'm telling you, brothers and sisters. Jesus wants to transform your heart. And the more you follow him, the more you will see his goodness and his grace and who he is and what he does through you. And so I plead with you, Trust him. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the truth and that you are not unknowable and distant, but you are near. And we know that so clearly and so powerfully and so beautifully in the person of Christ who is full of truth and grace. As we respond to you this morning, may we see your truth and may we see your grace for our lives and may we walk in it. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, in the life. Amen.